Father, you are a way maker where there is no way. You are a miracle worker, a promise keeper, a light in what seems like vast and endless darkness. We look at the world around us and we see suffering, we see disease and poverty and inequality and so many different things that could bring us to despair, but we are so quick to forget that you are sovereign over it all. Everything that is happening is happening according to your unfolding plan of love for your creation. And I pray that we would be constantly reminded of that in every direction that we turn I pray that as we study your word this morning, you would continue to bring us unshakable hope like you do every single day. Even when things seem hopeless, you continue to remain faithful and bring us hope after hope. Do that this morning that we will grow closer to you, that we will develop a greater love and devotion for you. And we thank you for the opportunity to come here and, and hear the preaching of your word and worship you. And we pray that we would never take it for granted. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Welcome to Simple Church. We're so thankful to have you with us this morning. Sorry, I'm going to switch it up. Let me readjust here. So grateful to have you with us this morning. We've been going through our series in the book of Romans. And last week, we got through Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Um, and if you were here with us last week, you were here for the announcement that we will be closing our doors at the end of this month. Um, and that's very sad, I know, for all of us. But the Lord has graciously granted us three more weeks and so we're going to use it to the best of our ability. Um, and since we made that announcement, I've prayed over and contemplated what to do with the messages moving forward. And um, I've come to the conclusion that I think the best thing we could do right now, not only with um, the church closing, but with this also being the Christmas season, I think still the best thing that we could do is to continue in the course that the Lord has set us on. And so the next couple weeks, what we are going to do is we are going to finish Romans 8 and go through Romans 9, and then Kenny has graciously agreed to come back and preach the last Sunday on the 27th. We're so thankful um, that he's going to come back and, and finish what the Lord started through him. And so the next two weeks, we're going to try to get through Romans 9 so that he is free to do whatever he feels called to do on that last Sunday. And so today is going to be a little bit different. We're going to finish these last nine verses of Romans 8 and then start diving into Romans 9. And so um, it's kind of going to be a little bit of a different setup. We're going to almost have two parts to the message this morning. And it may feel once we get done that um, we're kind of left in the middle of something, but that's okay. We'll kind of come to uh, the conclusion of all of that next week, Lord willing. So before I start, um, I have two things that I kind of want to clarify and, and um, get off my chest. They've been heavy on my heart. Um, 
these next two weeks, we're going to be diving into um, very deeply into the sovereignty of God, um, most specifically over the sin and salvation of mankind. There are things in Scripture that are very easy to understand. They're very clear and straightforward. This is not one of those things. Um, it's difficult to comprehend. If you look throughout Scripture, there are passages that reading them at face value seem to almost contradict this passage. And I'm fully aware of that. I'm simply preaching to you this morning what is in this passage. We know that the words of God never contradict each other. They only complement each other. But I don't fully understand how those things reconcile together. And I never will. I don't think any of us ever will. We as mortal and, and limited creation are, are trying to flesh out a key characteristic of an immortal and infinite creator. And so we have a ceiling for what we can understand. So keep that in mind as we move forward that I am in the same boat as you. Secondly, and this has probably been heaviest on my heart, it's okay if we disagree. If what I say differs on your beliefs on this issue, I am not negating your salvation. So long as we agree that God is Lord and he is sovereign, we can disagree on how that works itself in and throughout our lives. We have to remember what is important, and that is that God, for this time right now, has given us each other so that whether we agree or disagree, we still have the same purpose for our life. So much as we agree on these key doctrines, everything else is just a reason to grow in love for our Father and grow in love for each other. And so you are welcome to disagree with me. Um, I disagree with my decisions often, so that's okay. But with that being said, Please get out your Bibles and read with me in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, 
our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beautiful passage that we just read. I pray that as your word is brought forth, that you would give me clarity, that you would give us all understanding, that you would open our hearts and our minds to what your Holy Spirit has to say, that we wouldn't come to this passage or any other passage with a preconceived notion of what we think it should mean, but rather we will be open to let the Holy Spirit convict us and guide us in any way that you feel necessary. I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who makes them possible. Amen. Last week, we ended in verses 28 through 30. I'm gonna read those very quickly to you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we know because of this passage that if we are children of God, it is by his foreknowledge, predestination, his calling, his justification, and his means of glorification that we are his children and it is all according to his will. So as we finish up Romans 8, Paul portrays this glorious hope that we have because of the love of Christ to his people. He addresses this hope with certainty and authority because of God's sovereignty over the matter. Listen to these statements. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We've noted before several times that Paul often makes a point by asking a question. Um, this was common in Eastern literature of that time. It's a way of the author kind of working around the point so that the reader gets the point. It's a way of actually making the reader make a statement themselves. So what he means here is obviously if God is truly for us, no one can be against us. I'll explain what that means in a minute. But he asks it in a question because he wants to say if God is for us, who can be against us? And he wants the reader to go, no one. He wants the reader to make a definite statement. This was common in Eastern literature, but Paul makes especially great use of it. Now when he says... If God is for us, who can be against us? It does not mean that if God loves us, no one can hate us, no one can harm us, nothing bad can happen to us. It doesn't mean that. It means that what God ordains will come to pass and what God does not ordain will not come to pass. And if we have a promise that all things are working together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, we know that there is nothing that can work against that and undo that. Even the bad that happens in our lives is for our good according to his purpose. We see a great example of this in the story of Job. We're gonna reference a couple different passages today. I wish we had time to read them, but we don't. But I'm gonna give you the passages because I, I don't want you to just take my word for anything. In Job chapters one and two, we see that Satan is roaming the earth and essentially he's looking for souls. 
and he sees this God-fearing, God-protected man named Job. And he goes to God and asks God for permission. Think about that. He asks God for permission to attack Job. He says that the reason Job is so faithful is that he's always had this hedge of protection around him. So if you take away that hedge of protection, he says, Job will curse you to your face. And so God says, okay, you may do whatever you like. You just cannot physically harm him in any way. So Satan listens to the word of the Lord. He takes away everything from Job except his health, a couple of pretty ignorant friends, and a pretty conniving wife. And then Job, um, contrary to what Satan said, did not curse God. So Satan goes back to God and he says, well, yeah, but he just didn't curse you because you didn't let me actually do anything to him. But if you touch his flesh, if you do anything to him physically, he'll curse you to your face. And so God says, okay, you can do whatever you would like, you just cannot kill him. And so once again, Satan listens to the word of the Lord and he strikes down Job with these unbelievably painful sores all over his body. And if you know the story of Job, again, Job does not curse God. Um, and later on, as the story progresses, we see that God remains faithful to Job as he always does and he restores his wealth several times uh, past what he had before. What we see is that what is done to Job, and keep in mind, these are some terrible things that happened to Job, only happens by the allowance and the ordaining of God. It is not by chance. It is not outside of his plan. And so we see here that if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who gave up his own son, the only perfect being that has ever existed, will one day give us all things that he has promised. That's a guarantee that we can hold on to. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If God has justified us, no one can bring up anything against us that somehow trumps that justification. That includes ourselves. We cannot outrun the justification of God. We can't outdo it. It is complete. It is whole. It is perfect. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This perfect being, Jesus Christ, died the death that we deserve and was raised and is now interceding for us to the Father. So who is strong enough that they can come between the Father and the Son? Nothing, no one. There is no remnant of creation that is stronger than the relationship that can come between the relationship of father and son. Verse 35, listen to these next few verses, these beautiful verses. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, listen to this, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. For God's sake, that's what that means. 
For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Can these things separate us from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I know that's a past tense, loved. That doesn't mean the love stopped. It's simply referring to the price that was paid on the cross. He loved us enough to pay that price, but he continues to love us today. His love never ends. It never runs short. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember, the only thing in existence that is not a part of creation is God himself. He is the only thing in existence that was never created. He has always been and he will, he, he will ever be and everything has come from him. Satan is part of creation. We are part of creation. The angels are part of creation. They are all created beings, but God has always been and will always be, and so there is nothing in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is written to his children. This is written to the church in Rome. And so we can have the great hope of his love that is found in these verses and we can spend so much time reveling in the love of God for us, his people, and we should. We should spend time every day contemplating these things and meditating on them. They should constantly be on our hearts and minds, but eventually our minds will wander to the other side of the spectrum. God is a God of order and consistency. So when we're bringing up statements like foreknowledge and predestination, I understand that's kind of a touchy subject, but if, just if, God's children are predestined in, in, a, in a sense they're hand-picked that would mean that there are those who are predestined and handpicked to not be his children. I'm not trying to convince you that that's the case. I have my own beliefs, but all I want us to do right now is be open to what the word says. I'll let the Holy Spirit guide your mind where it needs to go. But I'm just throwing out a possibility. If that's true, that would mean there are also those who are purposely not his children. This issue, this very back and forth is what Paul goes into in chapter nine. So again, have out your Bibles, please. And I'll read chapter nine, verses one through 13. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. 
but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So we go back to the beginning of this passage and we see that Paul is, is all of a sudden there's a, a very dynamic shift in Paul's tone, in his attitude. He's, he went from this place of great joy and reveling in the love of Christ almost instantly to great sorrow. And it says, unceasing anguish. Listen to this. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Remember that before being converted on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, Paul was Saul from Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. Many people think that um, Pharisees are a type of ethnicity or a race of people, and they're actually not. They're a... a um, a sector, or for lack of a better word, a denomination, if you will, of the Jews, the same way that Christians have Southern Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and all different kinds of these different sections. The Pharisees were just that. They were Jews. Paul was a Jew. And that's who these original promises through the Old Testament covenants were for, this group of people by race. Yet not all of them were saved. So it leads to the question, if the promises were for this people by race, but yet not all of them were saved, has God then failed? Are his promises then not true? We see here in, in verses six and seven, it says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But as the word says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is a, a direct quote from Genesis 21, 12. And what we're seeing here is that even though, yes, this was a promise to the people of Israel, the race, there was still a matter of faith that had to be worked out. There was still a matter of faith that had to be present. We talked about this in Romans 4. And that falls upon God's election of his people, as noted by the reference to Abraham and Isaac. In Genesis 15, Abraham is promised children by God, but his wife, um, Sarah, is barren. 
tired of not having children, Sarah tells Abraham to sleep with his servant Hagar to produce a child, and he does, and this child's name is Ishmael. Gentlemen, I'm not the smartest person, but I'm astounded every time I read Genesis 15. If you're, it's a trap. Don't do it, okay? It's just, uh, I'm gonna shut up, okay. It gets me every time. It really does. But he produces this child, Ishmael. And 14 years later, and a couple chapters later, in Genesis 17, verses 15 through 21, we see this exchange between God and Abraham. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. This is not a joyful laugh. This is like laughing in the face of God. This is a mocking of the words that God just said. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, let Ishmael be the offspring. Let him be the one through which the covenant carries through because there's no way that we could have another child. I know what you just said, but I'm 100 and she's 90. It couldn't happen. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And so we see that Ishmael was a child of the flesh. He was created out of this human design, this human work to finish or to continue the covenant that God started. We've talked about this before. I hope you remember that when God made the original covenant with Abraham, it was a unilateral covenant, meaning that Abraham actually promised nothing back to God. God put him to sleep when he made the covenant with Abraham so that this would happen because Abraham is human like all of us and Abraham eventually would find a way to screw it up, to nullify the covenant. And so God made it a unilateral covenant, meaning a one-way covenant, so that if it were to be broken in some way, that could only be because of God. And we know that God doesn't break his covenants. Abraham could do nothing to nullify the covenant that he had set. And so we see now that Abraham and his wife are trying to continue the covenant through their own means, through works of the flesh and through their own cunning and design. But Isaac was only by the work of God. 
Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born and Sarah was 90, as we just read. She was far beyond childbearing years and was barren when she was in her childbearing years. That's why she told Abraham to sleep with Hagar in the first place. It was only by the plan, will, and action of God that Isaac was born to Sarah and Abraham. And that is why Isaac and his offspring carry the covenant and not Ishmael. So there's a, a, a theme that we've got set now. There's a thread we're starting to follow and it continues with Isaac. Verse eight, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, this is Isaac's wife, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, listen to this, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, that being God who calls, he's the one that calls. We saw that at the end of what we covered last week, but because of the works of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That last part, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, that is a direct quotation from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. A more clear way for us that we could say that is that Jacob I favored and Esau, I did not favor. It is not as though God hated Esau. Just like Ishmael, he actually protected Esau and he made Esau very wealthy and prosperous. But he was the firstborn. The, the Bible says that when he came into the world, he came first and Jacob was actually holding on to his heel. So the covenants that followed through the bloodline should have gone through Esau, but they did not. Now, with Ishmael and Isaac, you can, you can kind of grasp uh, or, or get a certain understanding of why it would have went through Isaac. Because, again, Isaac was a work supernaturally of God. Ishmael was a work of the flesh, a work and a design and an idea of man. But we actually see in Genesis 25 that we don't necessarily have the same situation with Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah, like her mother-in-law Sarah, was barren. She could not have children. And in Genesis 25 verse 21, it says that Isaac prayed for her to have children and God granted them this request and it was twins, Esau and Jacob. And so you, you don't really have... Um, the excuse of saying, okay, well, one was a work of the flesh and one was a work supernaturally of God. No, they were both supernatural births from God. So why would Jacob get the promises, get the covenants and not Esau? This is not because Jacob was a better person than Esau. You can go throughout um, the next couple passages after Genesis 25, and you can see that Jacob um, deceived his father. He took advantage of his mother. 
Um, he took advantage of his brother in a major way. He exploited his brother's birthright. So Jacob was definitely not a good guy. Isaac and Jacob did nothing to deserve the favor that they received, and Ishmael and Esau did nothing to be rejected that favor. Why did God choose Isaac over Ishmael or Jacob over Esau? Romans 9, verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I've tried to have this conversation before with um, some atheist or at least agnostic friends of mine, and the most common rebuttal that I get is, okay, well, you think you're one of the chosen ones, so of course that idea doesn't bother you. You know, it, it's easy to condemn somebody if you don't think you're under the same condemnation, right? It's easy to think that there's a chosen people if you think you're one of the chosen ones. It's, it's like they think this is such an easy concept for me to grasp. So just to get that out of the way, let me make this a little bit more personal for you. I had a friend in, in school that I was extremely close to. We were, we were best friends probably from the time we were 12 or 13 moving up. We played sports together. We sat in every class together where one of us was somewhere doing something stupid. The other one was not that far behind. Um, I had the word guilty by association used a lot, and it was usually true. But we were thick as thieves, and we were kind of the same type of kid. You know, there's different types of kids, and we were that same type of kid. We were always on the fence. We could go either way. And we came to a time in our lives where by no design of my own, by no desire of my own, God started drawing me into himself. And I say it wasn't of my design, my desire, because I went kicking and screaming the whole way. I spent, I don't know how long, trying to fight off convictions that I knew I couldn't do anything about. And all the while, God continued to draw me into himself. God hasn't done the same for my friend. And I'm still friends with this person. I still see them occasionally and talk to them pretty often. And every time I do, this is always in the back of my mind. And I'm usually pretty good at coming to some kind of peace about things. I haven't been able to come to one about this one. I read verses like the beginning of Romans 9, those first two or three verses, when he says, I wish that I myself were a curse and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. 
that's pretty harsh language, but I get it. I've, I've sat there so, I, I've, I've cried to God before so angry because I didn't understand because we were the same person. We did the same stuff. And I, I didn't do anything to deserve it. I didn't want it. And he chose to draw me in and not my friend. And I don't get it. It, it doesn't make sense to me. And there's really only one part that I've been able to come to terms with. And that's Romans 9, verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. I don't, I don't understand why I'm a part of that purpose of election and there are others that aren't. I, I don't deserve it above anyone it frightens me to know that my friend, that family members that I have don't have the hope that I've been given freely, that they may never have that hope. The only thing that I can continue to tell myself is that the God we serve is not bound to our standards and our rules and our ideas of logic he sees far beyond the here and now. And all I can say is that our God that loves his creation, specifically mankind who is made in his image, he loves his creation more than we could ever fathom, has a redemptive plan that is still in motion. It's not finished. The work is finished. That was done by Jesus Christ but it's still unfolding before our eyes. And it's a plan that infinitely transcends every sense of fairness and equality and logic and intelligence that we think we hold. We don't see how it all works and in this life we never will, but there will come a day when we will have no more questions. There will come a day when we will look back on the Father's supernatural work of love and mercy and forgiveness and spend every moment for the rest of eternity still uncovering the brilliance and the splendor of God's redemptive plan. And it is through nothing else but his love and his mercy that he has given us the opportunity to be his people. Isaac and Jacob were born and given the covenant through God's supernatural work alone. The Jesus child that we celebrate in this Advent season, that is the seal to these covenants, was born to the Virgin Mary through God's supernatural work alone. His covenant is carried forth to his people and brought to completion by his supernatural work alone alone. So I don't know where your heart and mind is this morning. Maybe you're overjoyed at the thought of a God who specifically picked you out for no reason other than he is loving and gracious and merciful. And maybe you're sorrowed and like Paul, you have unceasing anguish at the thought of a loved one who may not be 
in that chosen few or maybe even you don't feel like you are yourself. But like I said, the plan is still unfolding. God is still working and it's not too late. Wherever you may be today, it's okay. But wherever you are, fall down with every praise or every plea before the God who is sovereign in control on his throne alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message. It's so difficult and I don't understand it all. I hope with everything in me that I preach your word with truth and with clarity. But Father, if there is anything that I missed, if there's anything that I overlooked or said incorrectly, please correct me swiftly that you may be glorified and honored for who you are, for your love and your grace. Father, some of us may still disagree on this issue, but that is okay. Father, we still know that you are God and you are sovereign. We may not agree on what that looks like, but you're still in control either way. So grow us in love for each other this morning. Grow us in knowledge and devotion and commitment to you. Continue to reveal your unfolding plan of redemption to us that we may have ever more reasons every day to carry forth your light and your hope to a dark world. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.